and their mouths are stopped with dust. Oh, come with old Kayan and leave the wives to talk. One thing is certain that life lies. One thing is certain, and the rest is lies. The flower that once has blown forever dies. Myself, when young, did eagerly frequent doctor and saint, and heard great argument about it and about, but evermore came out by the same door as here I went. With them the seed of wisdom did I sow, and with my own hand labored it to grow. And this was all the harvest that I reaped. I came like water, and like wind I go. Into this universe, and why not knowing? Nor whence, like water, willy-nilly flowing. And out of it, as wind along the waves, I know not whither, willy-nilly. Without asking, hither hurried whence, and without asking, hither hurried hence. Another and another cup to drown the memory of this inverted. <laughs> Let's meditate now for just a couple of minutes. Last week when I said that the uh, super longer one was in this week's, because it isn't, it's in next week, it's number 31. Okay, before we start, do you need something, Brenda? <laughs> there, I think that they're there somewhere. Yeah, they're up on the table. He lived in the 11th century into the 12th century, 10-something into 11-something. Uh, I, had, I had it with me last week, but I don't have it now. According to according to what I've been able to find out, they're not in any particular order. Yes, you keep one keeps trying to make them sequential, and they're really not. They're just a collection of. What, Stephanie? Are, are the or, is the order in this book the same order that Edward Fitzgerald? Yes, I believe so, and I think that there was some traditional order, but he. He makes there's some there's some references from Edwin Fitzgerald about Edward Fitzgerald about uh, the order not there being no way to tell what the order really is and that they just they don't necessarily follow one after the, the another they just follow. Pardon me. Well, yes, isn't it true? If there was some, I mean, I think there's some awake for morning in the bowl of night is a definite beginning, and certainly a moon of mighty light that that knows no wane and a few of the others really definitely feel like ending one so there's some system to it but they're not necessarily related one to the other there's a, like 26 and 27 are sequential here uh, they connect 
but uh, you can't make them go one to another. And you can't even, as I was saying last week, you can't even, the images are not all even consistent. Sometimes one thing means something, and sometimes it means something else. Master really had to do it by intuition. Yeah. And sometimes you have to stop and think. Even Swami said when he was editing that this, sometimes he would just, it would be so really hard for him to see how Master ever got that interpretation out of what's written there. And you know, he tells the one story of the, the, him teaching a class where there was someone who read Persian. And that person told him that the meaning was very clear in Persian, even though it hadn't been captured. And the meaning that was in the Persian was what Master had spoken to, and the English simply did not represent it. So, so you have to realize Master wasn't going um, word by word. He just looked at it, and he knew what Omar Khayyam was saying. He, he went, remember when Master visited Therese Nuiman, and she's lying on the bed having these visions? And Master said he just went to her vision, and he had her vision with her, and he saw what her vision was. So obviously, in this case, he just went into Omar Khayyam's mind, his, his spirit, however you would say that, and he felt the consciousness from which he was writing, and then he knew what he was writing. And, and it, it's not accessible to us in the same way. So he tries to make it accessible. I don't know. I haven't read the original master's draft, uh, first draft of this, or whatever, unedited version of this. But Swamiji just talks about how Master makes many intuitive leaps. And what Swami tried to do in some cases was fill in the space. How did he get from this thought to that thought? And there's a few places, um, I don't know if I'll be able to pick them out, but there's a few places where you just look at it and you just don't know. You recognize, you know what the first sentence means, you know what the one that follows means, but you do not know how the word therefore related to it. And I know in some cases... In almost all cases, Swami was satisfied. In a few places, he said he just had to leave it because he just couldn't without creating something that Master had not said. He couldn't necessarily tie everything together, but he did his very best to do so. I was very much aware when I was reading this this last time. Um, I, I, I was saying to Swami on the telephone that this book is written with Swami's usual crystal clarity, but he's written his crystal clarity in poetry. I mean, his, the explanations, I mean, he's edited Master's commentary, and Master's commentary was poetic. And that was Swami's primary objection to the alternative version of this that SRF put out, is that it's not poetic. And whereas Master's was poetic. But, but what, what you, you realize in this is, um, every, every soul is endowed with inherent individuality. It, it never goes away. Where was I reading that? It was in the autobiography I was reading that, in the, the resurrection of Sri Yukteswar. And they're talking about the astral world. And they're talking about the fact that no matter what happens, you recognize each other. Because you, there is this spark of individuality that never goes away. No matter how many incarnations you've had, no matter how many times you've changed, you just still know who each other is because that individuality is inherent. Even for masters, even though they're one with the infinite, there's still that unique vibration. And there's such a unique vibration. It's not proper English. There is a unique vibration to this book that just isn't, it isn't like anything else. Even though it's Master's Commentary and Swami's editing, you can just feel that they've been, uh, they've been molded by the consciousness of Omar Khayyam himself. Do, do you feel that? That's what my experience has been working with this book this time. Even when I did it for that whole year, I did it just one quatrain at a time on Sundays for two years. 
But now, just sitting and reading it, you know, many, many pages at a time, I'm just aware of the fact of being somewhere that we've never been before. That's what I was saying last week. It's a very interesting consciousness. It, it's, it's an interesting consciousness that would express its divine realization in this way. You know, that would be born in such a time when this would be its expression. Because those quatrains are so um, unusual is the only word you can think of. That's why the rubat has lasted all these centuries. Because there's just nothing to, nothing to touch it. It's such a, a, a remarkable expression of consciousness. It's really fun in that respect. In, in a sense, it, it ties back into art as a hidden message. Although, of course, we are dealing with a master here. But we're just dealing with someone who just went into his own reality and then spoke his reality. He's speaking, as Master explains to us, of superconsciousness and of the spine and of the chakras and of all the same things everybody else talks about, but just picking it up from that particular place, um, which, which is an, an, one more affirmation of the, both the necessity and the permission that we all have to do that ourselves. You know, you just have to be yourself from the beginning to the end. Swami once remarked that it's almost like, he didn't say almost, but he said souls sort of start out in one direction and will stay there forever. You'll either be one of those souls that will get to liberation by becoming more and more solitary, or you'll be one who's going to be social all the way through. You know, just meaning uh, one who's involved with others and helps others. Or, And he says, you just don't change your basic stripes. So you have like Sri Rama Yogi, uh, that Swami tells us about who just lived completely by himself in that little village and that's all he did and when Swami said you should do more with your realization and he said God has done what he wants to do with this one and then you have Paramhansa Yogananda who just William the Conqueror Arjuna uh, Yogananda himself just such a different manifestation of the same realization so and then yet this is another so there's also like a certain inspiration that we can draw from just really taking these quatrains as they are. At last week I was sort of trying to say that, I was feeling it more this week. Just to really just uh, enjoy the poetry and not just skip over the poetry and look for the meaning. But just stay with the actual quatrain and the way those, in, the interesting way those words are put together and make them little mantras for us. You know, I know many of us awake the, uh, the bowl uh, and now I, I was about to say it because I know it, but now I don't remember it, the first one. Yes, yes. Awake for morning in the bowl of night is flung the stone that puts the stars to flight. I mean, you just can say that over and over again. And it's like a mantra that's very uplifting. And many of these are like very uplifting mantras. If you find one you like, it's not that hard to memorize. In my own performance just now notwithstanding, they're really not that hard to memorize. <laughs> okay. Any other comments or questions, Stephanie? Yeah, this is really minor, but um, this is the, the poetry is in iambic pentameter. Do you know if the original was iambic? I have no idea. But no, that's a good question. When you go from language to language, it's, it seems impossible to imagine that the rhythm of the words were the same. But maybe they were. It it was two verses rhymed, one verse not rhymed, and the third verse, fourth line rhyming again. That was the same. I don't know what iambic pentameter is. What is it? It's, it's, the, uh, well, it's like what Shakespeare wrote in where it's, there's 
each ion out there, each, um, what do they call it? Something or other. But it's, uh, the iambic is. Is it a matter of syllables? It's, it's two, two syllables, and the first one is unstressed, and the second one is stressed. I see. And then there's five of those in each line. Oh. That's what no. Well, it's quite possible. I don't know. That's a very good question. I'm sure someone could answer it. So let's think about whether we can find an answer. Okay? Because that rhythm is so important to the way it sounds. Maybe if I can find a, another version of, uh, another edition of it, maybe it'll say in the foreword or something. Seems unlikely that it was. But who knows? Because you just, languages are so different. Yeah. It has to be in English. Yeah, that's just what I was thinking. Seems, seems like it would have to be an English reality. That's what my common sense would say, is that it wouldn't transfer. I know once um, Swami was speaking to a certain person who shall remain nameless and was talking about in some other language that he was discussing, they didn't have the letter S. Don't ask me. And the person said, well, how do they make anything plural? <laughs> Which point Swami just merely stared silently for a long period of time. <laughs> someone, someone once remarked about themselves that English is their second language and they don't have a first language. <laughs> so we're not all equally endowed, you know. Steve, do we? Oh, Sarah. Uh-huh. Then sing it to yourself. Well, you can you can sing it to yourself. Get one of Swami's recordings and just and follow the words as you sing them to yourself as you read them. Yeah, the music um, breaks down the resistance of the brain. I'm sure there's another explanation for it, but you know it goes that music goes into another part of the brain, and so you grasp it you grasp it more directly because it's sound. And that sound music is direct. Sound is what you're made out of, so when he's singing it, it goes direct and you know it without having to think it through. Well, I just love the, uh, the melody, even without the words. Alternatively, get the IOMAR CD and listen and have that play while you try to read. You might understand it better. Yeah, no, that's true. That's why he did it. He thought you would understand it better because, you see, again, you hear that melody that he has on that particular one. Is it the same melody? Yeah. Yeah, it's the same. No, no, no. It's, no. it's a whole different thing. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, and but that vibration is this vibration. So you get that music coming into you, and you're essentially halfway there. And then you read the words, but you're already on the wavelength, and so the words go in more easily because you're you're um, arranged. You know, that's the theory of you can learn better if you play Mozart. It sort of arranges you so that you can learn better because it puts you in the mode to receive. I don't know whether that's true or not. Some say it is, some say it isn't, but I believe in the IOMR CD. I think it's a the truth there. Uh, Stephanie? I'm not sure if this has been mentioned, and I don't even know if this tape still exists, but I have a tape that was when he, when this first came out, anyhow, maybe it was before that, because he had written that thing before he wrote the the melody to the verses before he wrote the book, but it's uh, called the Alpamun of My Delight, and on the other side, that's one side, mm-hmm. and the other side is, uh, the whole side is Sri Gurudeva Om, 
and um, he doesn't sing the whole thing, but he sings quite a number. It's of true, things. he does. There is a there is a CD of that. We should resurrect that. It's one of those old I'm things. Not sure if it's ever made it into CD. It no, it's from me, but it's a res. Yeah. From a season. I believe it's older than that. Yeah. I think what she's well, anyway, it's unimportant. Let's not do this. Not, let's not spend time debating it now. <laughs> Any other questions? Let's just say it would be a good thing to get our hands on. Okay. Any other questions or comments? Okay. Um, I was going to just go through, uh, just start through and see how far we get. If there's any particular quatrains at the break that you think I'm not going to get to. Um, there, there's a, a number of these, and it's not really an original theme, but he deals a lot with the concept of time all through this. It's one of his favorite themes. So number 16, think in this battered caravanserai whose doorways are alternate night and day, how sultan after sultan with his pomp abode his hour or two and went away. Now, what Vassar and Swamiji write about this, what Master writes, is just trying to help us, this particular quatrain is trying to help us understand that everything in life is up and down. Think how much suffering we go through because it, 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 we have everything a certain way and then it goes another way. And when it goes that other way, we become agitated about it. And, we, and it's, just, it's just the constant way. It's, why, it's like whose doorways are alternate night and day. It's just we live in this reality of, uh, how does he say that? You know, life's periodic contrast is the phrase that he uses. And that everything that we're going to experience in life is always going to be an up and down. Swamiji has, has said this so many times to us, it's so hard to grasp. He said, of necessity, inasmuch as we were manifested from the still place in the center, and the manifestation of life is that things go back and forth, that's the vibration of Om that, that makes creation, and that ultimately it will all go back to stillness, that means every time it goes to one side, it has to go to the other. And the, as he put it, the sum total of all our karma after all our incarnations is going to be zero, which is every time we have allowed ourselves to go up on, on the wave of exaltation and allowed ourselves to be pulled off center, then to that exact same extent, we're going to have to go back the other way. And so every time in our lives that we just do that, Oh, things are not going the way I want. My feelings are hurt. I feel badly today. It's just the balance for all the times that we were the other way. Swamiji has commented sometimes that moodiness, uh, extreme moodiness in life is the result, he says, Master said, of uh, overindulgence in sense pleasures in the past. You know, just pushing ourselves to have pleasure, pleasure, pleasure results in the, a tendency to be depressed and down because you pushed it, you've worked so hard to push it all on that side, it's just inevitably going to come back to this other side. And if we're moody now, and then we sort of resent being moody, and every time we get a little glimmer of light, we grasp it. It's just this constant. And I, I just, the way he says it, how sultan after sultan with his pomp abode an hour or two and went his way. Now, he uses the images, external images of his time, but sultan after sultan is also those little parts of ourselves that kind of get in this proud ascendancy 
And we get in this proud ascendancy and now I'm so smart and I'm so good and this is what's happening and and then it just, it's there for an hour or two. I know a master said, and I love thinking about this, he said, if someone made a movie of your life, of your whole life, it would last about two hours. <laughs> Meaning, you know, all the significant events that they filmed the whole thing, it would be a two-hour show. And sometimes you think in the middle of an incarnation, this is really just a two-hour movie. They, you know, the, all, the only things that are happening here are two hours long, really. And then you just have to just stand back. That's what the whole rubaiyat, that's like the vibration of the rubaiyat gives you that power a little bit. To be able to just stand back, to just repeat these and, and just see yourself as a sultan having his little hour or two. And that means when you have your hour or two, when things are in the ascendancy, it's all right to notice it. But the difficulty is to get involved in it. And he said, I, I see, I wrote down to myself, it's just how strange that we can't see our own impermanence. It's, just, it's, it's that force of maya that we just cannot see our own impermanence. When we look in the mirror, we're just so, it's just so odd. But that's what the devotee, there's a balance line that the devotee seeks, which is, on one hand, you identify so strongly with your inner self that you really don't have any sense of, of, of lasting or not lasting. It, the body ages around you. It's a wonderful sort of thought sometimes to just watch the body age around you. And that, that is, is not happening to you, it's just happening around you. And then just recognize that everything comes and goes. What difference does it make? And that also gives us a certain strength of endurance. So this is a bad period. I remember once things were going extremely well for me and I commented to David sort of in a whisper, you know, this is a very good period for me. And then I said, and I know someday, sometime it won't be. And then I entered one of those dark places and I said, you know, this is a very bad period for me, but I know sometime it won't be. And that's just really what we have to just say. It, it may, I may be feeling this, but so what? I remember not too long ago, I was just really upset about something and I was sort of ranting on and on about how everything was so terrible. And right in the middle, I said, I don't even believe this. <laughs> it's just like, what is the point? What is the point of getting so melodramatic about it? It's just not happening that seriously. And that's what he's saying. Okay, and then this is the, just the same verse. They say the lion and the lizard keep the courts where Jamshad gloried and drank deep. And Bahram, that great hunter, the wild ass, stamps over his head and he lies fast asleep. I love the picture of the lion and the lizard. That's also him just saying, you know, the great and the small. There, sometimes you see these pictures of Cambodia or places where there's these very Angar Wat, where there's these very ancient ruins and then everything has grown over it. And, and yet you look at it and it's just, on one hand, it's just as alive as it ever was people walking, having their lives there, priests and so on. I mean, it's not that it's actually happening, but it did happen. It was there. And now just it just runs like this. The lion and the lizard, where this very powerful person once, once was. Swamiji sometimes says to us, he said, you know, when you're showering, he said, he said he was showering once and he was washing his arm and he was thinking, you know, this is just going to be dust. You know, this arm. Not a sort of theoretical thing, but this arm, the very thing I'm holding and taking such good care of. 
It's just going to be ashes some, somewhere someday. I know when uh, one of our friends was dying of cancer, she got, and she knew she only had so many weeks to go. She um, went and picked out her coffin, or she went and picked out the urn that she was going to put the ashes in. She went to the place where the uh, ashes would be buried. I mean, she just did the whole thing very, very courageously because she just really wanted to just take it full on. I mean, she was at the end of her life, and she knew it. But she said it helped her a great deal to sort of be lying there and be able to just see herself as ashes. It really, and see her, know that she was going to be in that little urn somewhere. Far from being morbid, it was very liberating. I know Bella, before Bella died, Bella Bingham, uh, just like, you know, two weeks before she died, I don't know what was going on with her hair, but it looked really cute. And Durga said something like, Bella, your hair looks nice like that, right? She's going to be like dead in two weeks. Bella knew she was dying because her, Bella just, she had made a decision. She wasn't going to, you know, she knew, really knew exactly because she wasn't going to take, she wasn't going to be force-fed. She was going to be intravenous. You know, just a few things. So she knew the cycle. And Bella just looked at her and said, I'll be the cutest little corpse you ever saw. <laughs> But that's the spirit, isn't it? But Bella also, there was an extraordinary story told to me about her when she was dying, because she had a husband and a home she loved and Ananda and everything. Um, Somebody was visiting her and she was very distant and she sort of came out of that and said, she said, I see thousands of faces that keep coming before my eyes and I realize they're all my different incarnations. She said, so, you know, just in seeing all of those, it's very hard to be very concerned about this body going away. Isn't that marvelous? But you see, it's all right there within us. Even if we can't see it, it's just so totally true. This is the hour for which we were born, and we do have to play out this little story. But, oh, how many stories we have played out. And when you see yourself weeping or wailing or dancing in um, uh, glee over some relatively speaking superficial event just think how many times have I how many times have I been here doing this how many more times do I want to be here doing it and it's not that you you don't live later on in one of the quatrains master says um, to hate creation is not spiritual you can't just um, reject it but you have to accept it in the right spirit and also it's just How impersonal is fate? You know, the lion and the lizard, they just don't care. They'll just make a nest somewhere. They don't care where the nest is. Once when we were at Ananda Village in the early days of the Hubble building, which was very primitive in those times, that's now the Hansa Temple. Once we took down this big paper poster of Master that had been on the wall for a number of years, and bats were living behind it. And, you know, it was just this whole extremely unpleasant cycle of those bats flying around the office. I actually, I had an experience of, of total, like, terror-born memory lapse. The, I was in my office and I was working on something and the bats had kind of gotten loose all over. It was the daytime, so they were pretty rattled because we had taken the poster down without knowing it. And I was just writing and this bat fell right where I was writing. And I, without uttering a sound or anything, walked over, picked up a box, and put the box on top of the desk to hold the bat in, put something heavy on top of the box. Then I walked out and started to scream. (laughs) But I did all that first. (laughs) 
<laughs> very strange sort of what the mind will do. But, uh, but now, what was I, what was I going to say about those bats? Oh, how impersonal they were. They were living behind our picture of Master. It seemed to us such an irreverence, you know. But to them it wasn't. You know, our little human story, they didn't care about it all. And uh, so, uh, Master says in here someplace, you know, we look at, at insects and think how short and little their lives are. And that's just how God looks at us. I remember also from that, that time in Pubble, um, publications building, we always call it Pubble. I have to wait a moment. Okay. But I can. <laughs> Um, I was, uh, we used to work, at, live at Ayodhya over where Crystal Hermitage is and we used to have no cars and we'd walk to work every day and worked up, I worked up in the, what is the Hansa Temple, which was the publications building, which was called Pubble. And, uh, it was very half-finished and there was a lot of wildlife in there with us, the bats being one example, but just in general we shared it with the lion and the lizard kind of. And I remember one day, this was a small thing, but I came in and on my typewriter before computers, there was a very small spider and that spider was sort of with great energy moving around the keys and it would sort of go up you know up to the platen and it would sort of sit there for a while and enjoy that and it would feel inspired to come and find the G and then it would sort of you know view the world from the perspective of the G and then it would go over to the shift bar and I was just watching it like this and all of a sudden I had this thought of how completely powerful I was in regard to that spider and all by myself I began to follow the spider sort of like this and just as I was doing that I had this extremely eerie sensation of Divine Mother with her thumb on top of me and I had this feeling of her follow, having followed me all morning and watched me you know come across the hill and go across the dam and chatter with my friends and do this and do that with the same sort of self-important little spirit that I was seeing in the spider and it was just so um, layer upon layer, such a sensation of, I think that my life is so strong and so much under my control and it's just about as purposeful and within my command as that little spider. You know, and I finally just let him go away. Obviously, I wasn't going to take his life at that point. <laughs> but uh, that's, it, those images are really worth having because also you have to ask yourself the question, you know, in as much as it, it, this could be my last breath. How do I want to spend it? You know, what, what do I really want to be doing with my consciousness? You know, especially as we talk about, well, there's one in here later. In fact, it's this one right now. Um, everything is interconnected. The 18th one says, I sometimes think that never blows so red. The rose is where some buried Caesar bled. That every hyacinth the garden wears dropped in its lap from some once lovely head. And the purpose of this is to express to us the idea of how all life is interconnected. And that even this, um, the flower that's growing here on the soil is affected by the soil in which it's growing. And Swami writes, Master writes about how um, the environment influences us, but we in turn influence our environment. And the thoughts that we think are all a collection of what everyone else has thought before. And he gives us several different pieces of advice, which is to, to draw upon the beautiful um, energies that have come before us. But he also uses this to encourage us to take more responsibility. You know, we, 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 we tend to think 
that what we have in the privacy of our own mind is our own business, but it's not at all true. What, what we have in our mind is the projection that's going out that's making the world what it is, in a very, very true sense. I mean, sometimes people are a little naive and they're encouraging us to think that we can just sort of think a whole new level of creation. But it isn't, it's also, it's also is a truth to it. I've, it has this line here. Um, we, we quoted this once, let our thoughts be beautiful and fragrant, that the memory we leave behind us be a blessing on the earth. And, and when you think about that, every time you're in any environment that you're in, you realize that when you're in that environment, you're going to walk away from it. And what will be, what will be the memory that will be left behind? What vibrations will you have planted in that space? When you walk into a grocery store, what vibrations will you have planted in that space? And elsewhere, Master also writes, don't think it's all just about what you do. It's really just entirely your vibrations, what you're emanating. Some of the most influential people just influence through their vibrations. It's not anything that they say. I mean, we know people in our lives who are just so uplifting to be with. We're fortunate in that we have friends like that. And it isn't anything particular necessarily that they say or do. They may be clever, they may not be clever. But there's just something that comes out of them that's so supportive to us. Think about the responsibility and the possibilities also of being in that way ourselves because it's all one interconnected flow. And that also helps give us strength when we feel like we don't have the power to do something or we don't have the energy that we can yet also, I mean, just draw on the masters or draw on the atmosphere around us to not live so small. That's all. Just not live so small. It's these, these multiple levels. One level is that we're just here for a short time and it just comes and goes. And it's an up and down constantly. And the only thing that's permanent is the consciousness that we have. That's what he says over and over. Everything goes away. All you have is your consciousness. At all times, that's all you have. We, we think we have all these other realities, but all we ever have is our consciousness. Ever. Any comments or questions? Were you going to comment on that side? Okay. This number 19 is a little more esoteric. And this delightful herb, whose tender green fledges the river's lip on which we lean, ah, lean upon it lightly, for who knows from, one, from what once lovely lip it springs unseen. Now, what Master says this one means, and I had to really just like, you look at this one and you think, hmm, gee, I wonder what this means. <laughs> And he talks about the herb is the uh, new, new thoughts of divine perception. The river's lip is the, the, the column of energy up the spine. The, uh, the divine source within us. And these new sensations grow upon this, the bank of this uh, inner energy. And that we lean upon it because we rely upon it, but he says, be sensitive, concentrate very sensitively because it comes from the divine. So, in other words, this that you're enjoying, you have to relate to it in the right vibration. You have to recognize that these new perceptions of reality are coming from your inner self, and you have to tune into that very sensitively. When Swamiji talks about how to tune into intuition, and how to be intuitive and how to have a lot of intuition. One of the things he comments on is the very nature of intuition is that it's ephemeral. 
It's very, very delicate. And we have such an inclination to say, well, I feel intuitively inspired to do this. And we take what is really um, completely non-physical and then we fix it in stone and then we argue with people and then we attach our ego to it. And as a result, nothing more ever comes of it. And even the little bit of intuition we have gets very distorted. So this particular chapter is saying when these, when these new intuitive ways of understanding the spirit come to you, they come from deep within your inner self. They don't, they're not a product of the ego. So the first thing we have to understand is we have to tune in that it comes from deep into my, inside my inner nature. And then we have to be very um, sensitive to it further because the source of that is really the divine. And if we want to draw more and more of that in, we have to relate to it in just that way. Um, and above all, we have to keep the ego out of it, which is the trickiest part. Because as soon as we start getting a little of that, we finally have something to be proud of. That's the joke, you know. As soon as you get a little spiritual, the ego has finally has a reason to boast. Look at me, I'm getting spiritual. Swami tells that story in the path, how he worked so hard on his humility that became proud of being humble. <laughs> and that was when Master said, poor Walter, he's so confused. <laughs> and then later, when he got himself straightened out, Master said, Walter was on his high horse, but now he's coming our way. And what that was really about was that Walter was trying too hard to do it on his own. He wasn't conscious enough of what the source of those sensitive inspirations were. That's, where, that's what this is a warning about. Don't get into pride. Don't get into ego. Just because a little bit has come to you, you don't know where this is coming from. You don't know what real source this is. This is from the divine. Ah, my beloved, fill the cup that clears today of past regrets and future fears. Tomorrow, why tomorrow I may be myself with yesterday's 7,000 years. Isn't that wonderful? Fill the cup that clears today of past regrets and future fears. Swami Master talks about that a long time. Past regrets and future fears. The way he puts it is like you regret so much that we did made karmic mistakes in the past and we really fear that we're going to have to pay for them in the future. <laughs> and so you're sort of caught between those two realities. You know, you know that you've done wrong and you know that the karmic price of that is going to come. But he, he also says, what is the point? If we, if we go into divine consciousness, we don't have to live out all that karma. It changes all that karma. One, it literally changes it because it, it dissolves the vortices in the spine, the practice of Kriya Yoga as an example, which Omar Khayyam must have done something like Kriya, if not Kriya proper, I mean in exactly the same way. Because when you, when you meditate correctly and raise Kundalini energy up the spine, it takes, it draws the seeds of karma out of the chakras and draws them into the river of divine awareness and burns them up. So even if you did in fact have that uh, set in motion in the past, the the cup, when the cup is filled with divine awareness, all that energy shifts and you don't face that karma anymore because you've burned it up. That's why Master writes in Autobiography of a Yogi that one Kriya is like 12 years of right living. Because in 12 years you can kind of gradually get the point and figure out a few things but one Kriya circulates the energy through all of the chakras and that they represent the zodiac, the, the circle of the sun through all the signs of the zodiac. 
one cycle of Kriya through all the chakras is equivalent to one year. And so you live through a whole year and you burn up all that karma and you don't have to face it anymore. So when we're asking, this is not just a, um, a poetic thought, it's a real thought. You know, fill the cup, beloved, fill the cup that clears today of past regrets and of future fears that burns up all the karma. And I don't have to worry about the past anymore and I don't have to fear the future. I mean, think how much time we all spend caught in that. Thinking about how I wished I'd done it differently and I'm, I'm nervous about what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, just even try with one's imagination to project what life would be like if we really were cleared of those realities. Isn't that something? Swamiji's, um, Swamiji had a picture taken of his aura, uh, just by an aura photographer. And some of you have seen it. It's a beautiful, it's, a, it's, it's all indigo. And, uh, and it's a very interesting picture because it's completely consistent. It's just consistently this indigo color and it's all, it all, it's all over him. You know, it just almost obliterates him. I mean, I don't, I don't have any idea what that, it's a Karelian photography, whatever. I don't even know what it is. But his photograph is certainly different than most other people's photograph. And the people who took the picture also said they'd never seen a picture anything like it. Now, Swami himself, actually, you never know. He, he passed that picture out. He showed it to everyone. He talked to everyone about it. And he said something that was an interesting sort of comment on it, uh, uh, related but not exactly. He, he said quite a few years ago, he mentioned, that his, that his subconscious is no different than his conscious mind. That, that he, he, never, he never dreams in ways that are not exactly the same as he is now. Do you understand what I mean? That there's, that there's nothing in his subconscious. I mean, that's, that's really quite a statement. Because what that's saying is that there isn't any karma. There's nothing that is from the past that's going to affect the future. It's all balanced. I mean, that's what Master said to him. Everything is balanced for you now. Everything is balanced. When Master told him that he would find God at the end of this lifetime, he said, everything is balanced. And, and when he was, Swami was talking about the blue of this picture, that was one of the things he was saying about it. Well, he's all the same. There's no piece of him that's, that's holding something back. Now, that's 50 years of Kriya. Swami, Swami knows the two times he didn't practice Kriya twice a day because those were the two times when he had such a high fever that he couldn't. And that's, that's not a small thing. And as he puts it himself, it, it wasn't an effort to practice Kriya. It was simply the most fun thing he could think of to do. You know, get up every day and, like, what would I like to do today? Well, practicing Kriya is that which he was, has always been eager to do because fill the cup. Let me escape from all this past and future. That's what's written here. And then tomorrow, you know why tomorrow? I love that. I may myself be with yesterday's 7,000 years, meaning I just may be gone from here. It just could be over. So now is the moment. We have to do it now. And all that we're really trying to do is find our soul happiness, just piece by piece. It's such a joke. <laughs> Quatrain 21. Lo, some we love, the loveliest and best that time and fate of all their vintage pressed, have drunk their cup a round or two before, and one by one crept silently to rest. And Master comments about this, about how life is a stage and we are all actors. And as he puts it, I love the way he says it, he says, real, li real life is the real stage. 
and the theater that we make is just a little imitation that we think of afterwards. And even those that we think are imperishably our own, you know, I love you, you love me, you're always going to be with me and I'm always going to be with you and you're always going to be with me and I'm always going to be with you and you're always going to be with me. Master writes, in fact, he, he says this on one of his tapes, you know, uh, God sees lovers pledging themselves to all eternity and he laughs. laughs. And then their bleached bones lay on the beach, you know, it's just like, oh Lord. And the whole story in the autobiography of Babaji you know, keeping Lahiri's place and keeping his copper, his brass water bowl shined and his little cave swept out and his blanket folded. And, and when they talk about that, I said, what, they say, what, you know, what human love can, can go through incarnations like that and, and keep consciously? And Babaji says, I watched you as you covered your tiny body with sand and meditated in the sun. You know, with our human egos, we aspire to that. That's our, our way of expressing our, our, our desire for immortality. We mean well. But only the divine has that kind of love for us, really. And so, you know, the loveliest and the best, the ones that were our most favorite, and that we really thought this time we were going to get to keep. Now, bear in mind, our relationships do endure. And, and, and they are over long periods of time. And at the end of the path, um, Swamiji writes about spiritual families and how they're drawn together and how we do in our associations with one another. These are long, repeating relationships. Swamiji has often said the, the explanation for the harmony of Ananda, which is really extraordinary considering how many diverse types are involved and how many. And yet we really all just get along. I mean, of course, every so often people will have blow-ups with certain people and you'll just suddenly realize that someone is really quite despicable and you really loathe them. I mean, these thoughts do enter your mind from time to time and sometimes we give expression to them. But nonetheless, it comes and goes. But collectively, even when those little things are going on, they're just those periods of time when you're hating someone for a while or they're hating you, but time passes and you don't even remember. You don't even remember that you had this big thing with someone. But as a whole, we just flow along so well. And Swami writes, because we've just been together so long. You know, Master and his children in this particular branch, Swami's branch of the family, we've just been doing this for a really long time. And that's why I, uh, you come from a foreign country or you go to a foreign country and you meet people you can't even talk to. But all of a sudden, you just know them. I know when David and I went to Europe with Swamiji in 1982, it was our first trip there, and that was before Ananda had an established place. And at that time, a woman named Gabriella and a man named Cesare were doing a meditation group in Pisa. I think Gabriella still does it. And they had also acquired a piece of property in which they wanted to have a retreat, and it was sort of somewhere out from there. David and I did not speak word one of Italian. It was the first time... I had ever been in Italy. He'd been there before, but we had no Italian. And there were a lot of people who had no English. And we were often with these people who had no English. And we had no Italian. So we were just like totally unable to relate in anything like the way that we would normally relate. And so, and we were in somebody else's car and Swami was being spirited off with everybody else. I mean, we were useless because we couldn't speak. So we were just in this big caravan. We were, went for a you know, two-hour trip. We finally go on this dirt road. We finally get into this place. We go through gates. We 
get out of the car, we go through different rooms, we climb up buildings, it's sort of this half, half not quite finished. We go this way and that way, up the stairs, down a long hallway, into like this, and finally we get into this room and there are the masters. And it was just like we never left. And that was the first time for, for me that I was there in, a, in that kind of an atmosphere. That was 20 years ago, so now it's happened a lot. And then all these people, so we, they started singing Door of My Heart in Italian. And it was just so, like, everything changes, everything's the same. But that's the level that doesn't change. And even in our human relationships, even with these very close, you're my husband, you're my child, you're my best friend, all of these different things, as much as possible, just be there. Be in the part. I had a very interesting experience. I had a very difficult karma with... I've had several of these, but one really notable one with a, a person at Ananda Village that went on for about 15 years. We just, we really didn't like each other, just intensely didn't like each other. And I also realized that she was one of my best friends because we had everything in common except for the fact that we didn't like each other. <laughs> Every single thing that really mattered, we shared. We just didn't get along because we loved God. We loved Master. We were devoted to it. And yeah, we tortured each other in various incarnations and competed and been really horrible, so we were very, very wary of each other. But what difference did it make? And that's where we have to put it all the time. That's why Swami sometimes says, you know, when couples are breaking up, he says, any two devotees ought to be able to get along with each other. And he sort of shakes his head and admits that, in fact, they don't, but they ought to be able to. And now it's 22. And we that now make merry in the room they left and summer dresses in new bloom, ourselves must we beneath the couch of earth descend ourselves to make a couch for whom I love that. Don't you love that? After a time, you know, who's going to be here doing this? When we built a little house at Ananda Village, I never built, I never had anything, I mean, never before or since. And when it was finished, I spent the first night there, David was away and I was by myself and I thought, I wonder what else this room is going to see. You know, this is the first person to spend a night in this house now that it's going to be completed. I'm sure those of you who have owned or built houses have wondered that. And I thought, you know, it's going to be a very short time. I didn't, we actually lived there a few years. I didn't, I didn't necessarily know we would be leaving as soon as we did, but I knew we'd leave sometime. And then somebody else would move in, it would be theirs. Master talks about that too. This land that you divide up and call your own and then someone comes and says, this is mine. And then the next one comes and says, this is mine. And so, um, anyway, it's just a, that, that same, it was exactly that same comment. But these are all different ways of, of not taking ourselves so seriously. That's what I was, that was the phrase I was looking for. Just, we descend ourselves to make a couch for whom? When you're sort of feeling like the world's out to get you, just ask yourself, what difference does it make? Doesn't mean you can't, you don't have to give your whole, your whole all to it. But just stand back and see it from the perspective of eternity. Now, let's take a few minutes break. Yes, Tom? We, we uh, talked earlier about how sometimes the, the words don't mean the same thing from one thing. Yeah. The word rose sometimes means yeah, different things. Yeah. Because in one, in the 
Yeah. So you yeah, you think you got it all figured out and then you get outsmarted again. Yeah, I resent I resented that slightly. <laughs> But that's not really what it is, is it? <laughs> Gosh, what to do, what to do. <laughs> yeah, but it does, the mind, I don't know whether this is a factor of translation, you know, whether it's more, whether it is more consistent in the original and he had to make the iambic pentameter work or whatever it is. But nonetheless, there we have to deal with it. But it did, it does, it keeps disconcerting me too. So I just take, you just have to take each one on its own terms. Yes? Uh, I have a sense in reading it that this is written in Persian, which is really a language which is far removed. I mean, like if we study Bach and look at German, we can understand some of the subtle changes when somebody explains it. But I, I have a funny feeling because it's in Persian that even with the zeros, there may be just really big differences. So when they have like the cup, they may have really major subtle differences as to what the implications are. It's, it's quite possible. The language is so far removed from German. But what's so, what's so remarkable about it, as Swami himself says, you know, is that it's in translation that this has been so loved. You know, this isn't, it's just, it's just so interesting. Um, sometimes people protest about a master's writings having to be edited. You know, the fact that Swami has done enormous explanations of why even master's writings have to be edited, why he wrote them to be edited. And then Swami points out that you'll read a book that's translated. There's not one word that's the same. And yet you'll read it and you feel like you've been in connection with that author's consciousness, which just really shows you that, that, that it's the consciousness that you're relating to and the ideas. Not the specific words necessarily. Those, that's just as Swami puts it, the plumbing that lets the water come through. So yeah, it's a, it's a factor. It, it's just one of those things that we're working with. None of us, I don't believe, no Persian can relate to it. It's also unimportant. It becomes scholarly at that point. Because whatever the linguistic explanations are, they don't matter at all because the point is what it means. And Master has gotten meaning out of it. And, and Edwin Fitzgerald has written beautiful poetry, and that's enough, the combination's there. I mean, if you happen to know and have an interest, you can, but it's not going to make you any wiser to know. That's the real point. And he, you, know, you can have more stuff in your head if you know, but you won't necessarily be any wiser. <laughs> I'm not a scholar. I never have been, so I have to sort of put that as a caveat. I can, and I can also be really careless about details. So... I have to say that as a condition. Other people may feel it's more important. I've watched Swamiji be extremely attentive to things that I don't think make any difference. But he will be very attentive to them because he knows they make a difference to somebody. I remember one whole class he gave once in which he spent so long with just these new, tiny nuances of tiny pronunciation of Sanskrit. And afterwards he said, I did that for so-and-so. <laughs> because it was just real important to so-and-so to just have it just like that. They just would not have been able to put it down unless it had been pinned down. So he did it for their sake. Because everybody's a little different. 
Okay. I don't know if I'm going to get through all 15, we'll see. Ah, make the most, this is 23, ah, make the most of what we yet may spend before we too into the dust descend. He really likes dust, doesn't he? Dust into dust and under dust to lie. Sans wine, sans song, sans singer, and sans end. Okay. And the way Master puts it is so simple. We can carry on with this birth and death and reincarnation for as long as we want. And that's the sort of eerie, creepy thing about it. I think uh, I read somewhere that Master said some souls that are manifested at the beginning of the day of Brahman are drawn back in at the end of Brahman and they still haven't made it. They're still just wandering around in delusion and they'll just be remanifested again. It's a really horrifying thought, isn't it? We're not going to be among them because we're already here. Okay? But you really, it just, it just goes on and on. Because you can just keep playing the game out over and over and over again. That's why he says, the sense pleasures end, but there's no end to it. It just goes on. And the choice is ours. That's what you have to realize. It's in our hands to make it different. And we're already doing it. And then Quatrain 24 says, Alike for those who for today prepare, and those that after a tomorrow stare, I love staring after a tomorrow. You know, it's like you just like hoping that it's going to happen there. It's not happening here. You hope it's going to happen there. Just that word stare is such a good word, isn't it? Okay, amusing, you pronounced it different. Amwazing, from the tower of darkness cries, fools, your reward is neither here nor there. And that, that the voice from the tower of darkness is the voice from all our past suffering that says, how can you be so foolish as to think that this is going to work for you? And it's just the same whether you sort of think you've got it all together now or whether you're hoping to have it in the paradise to come. None of those realities will work. He's just so... You can see why he had to um, cover it, mask it. Sort of like Sri Uteshwar talking about saying that you know, when people come, he doesn't, Master writing about Sri Yukteswar, when people had come to Sri Yukteswar, Sri Yukteswar was very direct and very involved with the life of his disciples, but to everybody else he would just be charming. You know, he's just like, why tell them? Why bother? Why remind them? You just can't go and tell people who don't care, um, you know, that uh, life is foolish and this goal is the grave. It just doesn't, it's not a... It's not worth it, but for those who can, who have ears to hear, it's very much like uh, Jesus telling his parables and then saying those who have ears to hear, meaning many of you, this will pass right over your head. Oh, I had the strangest experience this way. When I came back from uh, Delaware, which was on the 8th of July, um, the, I was routed through Chicago, which people tell me you don't do that because the weather is always bad. And, so I got, got to the airport and they had to switch me to, the, to a, Dallas, a flight through Dallas. And I got home at the same time, but I ended up with a window seat instead of a, an aisle seat. And I like to drink lots of water and get up lots. But I was trapped in this window seat with these big, in both cases, with these big men in the middle of the night. And, you know, I just, I couldn't keep beating on them and asking them to get up. And they were too big for me to get over, you know. I, I, I just didn't know how to do it. So as a result, by the time I got home, I was very dehydrated and just out of it and sort of sick. And so I was, for like two days, I was homesick. And somewhere in the middle of the first or second day, I'm talking to Shanti, who's a doctor on the telephone. 
and we're discussing the fact that I don't feel well. So she tells me, what she actually told me, is that you have a labyrinth inside your inner ear that helps you with balance and that there's fluid. Everybody's in line there, there's fluid in there. And that when you get dehydrated, it gets off and you feel exactly like I was feeling. Well, partly because I was feeling that way. But when she told me I had a labyrinth inside my inner ear that goes inside, and she used the word brain. Somehow the labyrinth was in the brain. And all I could see was all these people walking meditatively inside my brain. And it's just like, I just, like, I couldn't accept it. I couldn't take it. And so afterwards, for several days, I was telling people that Shanti says that there's a latitude line in your brain. That's what I said. And then I, and I would say, I'm not sure that's what she said, but I think she said there's a latitude line in your brain because she also said the labyrinth helps orient you in the world so you can tell where you are. So that's where I got the word latitude. This latitude line that tells you where you are. <laughs> and that when you travel, sometimes the latitude line gets off. And then I would say, don't blame her if that's not quite right. You know? <laughs> and so later I was talking to Shanti and I saw her and I, I just had this like, you know, this nagging sense that I was not correct. And I, so I started telling her and I said, Shanti, did you say that I have a latitude line in my brain? And then she said, labyrinth. And, and as soon as she said that, it was like I flashed back to that whole thing and I could feel, it was very interesting, I could feel that labyrinth didn't make sense to me, therefore I rejected it. I just simply rejected it and substituted for it something that was similar but that was not right. But I just did it because I didn't want it to be labyrinth. I didn't like it. I didn't have any even emotional reason for caring. It's just that I didn't understand, so I changed it. And I talked to Shanti later and I told her, she said, have you ruined my reputation with anyone where I need to go back and fix it? She said. <laughs> I said, no, I, I told them in all cases that I thought I might be wrong. So. But to me, the most interesting thing about it was to watch myself do that. And I thought, because I've had experiences over many years with Swamiji. He would often have me in the room. Sometimes I was not the only one. Sometimes I was one of only a few or the only one. Sometimes I would sit there when he would talk to people and he would counsel people. And he would have conversations with them that, I mean, not profoundly personal, but relatively personal. And I would listen. I would listen to him counsel. And so I would know that he said certain things. And more times than you would think, years later, you know, when, when all the karma had run its course, I would say, well, you know, of course this was going to be difficult. And Swami warned you of that at the beginning. He did? Well, yeah, he said so-and-so. He did? You know, just like they had no idea it had been spoken. Just none. And I mean, I was there. And I, I have a very sharp memory, and sometimes I even wrote things down. I knew exactly what had been said. And you hear that, but then you have little moments like mine where you just watch where the brain won't take it. And, and that's just what's happening. Yeah, it's, no, it's very scary, but it also makes you humble. I had another one of those where um, when we were right in the middle of the, one of our trials and people were just telling, fabricating events all over the place, and one of the things that people would do which I learned later is a common memory thing, is they would remember the circumstances, but they would shift the roles. And they would remember what had happened, but they would change, they would change roles with people. And they would take a part that made them the victim instead of the perpetrator, or whatever it was, made them what they wanted. And again, you think, how could people do it? Well, I was telling the story. 
and I was just telling the story, and I was like three minutes into it, and I realized I had just shifted. I was acting one part, and it was not the part I'd actually played. And again, there was no reason for it in that case. There was no big emotional charge on it. My mind just flipped them. Got a piece of it and turned it around. So it's always good to be a little humble. You know, it's, it's just always good to say, that's how I remember it. That's what I think is true. Maybe it'll be proved true, maybe it won't be proved true, but you just don't know. And that's, you know, there's all kinds of legal things about that sort of thing. All that has to do with, we just really have to um, respect delusion, is how I always put it. You have to have a really healthy respect for delusion, super healthy respect for the possibility that we're wrong. It's a very fine line to walk, because on one hand you have to be, you have to have a lot of courage. You just have to have the courage to do really bold things. I was, you know, quoted from some CEO, you know, you just have to have the courage to do really bold things. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. But if you don't have the courage, you don't get better for being timid. But you just have the courage with the full awareness that maybe it'll be right and maybe it won't be. I'm doing the best I can. That's the best I can do. And, and all through here, you know, they talk to us about humility, humility, be humble and be humble, be humble. And being humble is just being uh, honest. I mean, because it's, it's stupid to say you never know anything. Sometimes you know a lot. But when people conflict with you, Sri Yukteswar used to say, well, you say, well, perhaps you're right. I just love that. You've conceded nothing. You haven't really apologized. You just say, well, who knows? Perhaps you're right. And then there it is. And perhaps they are. Or perhaps in their little parallel universe, they are right. You just don't know. <laughs> perhaps they are right. It's such a supportive and wonderful thing to say. Swami has another comment, which I love, which is, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've translated that into what's known as sympathetic clucking noises. Sympathetic clucking noises are often really just as fine as smooth, because who knows? You're not patronizing, because just who knows? This is the person's reality. Who knows why they have it? Just let them have it, unless you really have to deal with it. So it's been a hard-earned lesson for me. Okay. We'll skip the ironic one, because we kind of get the ironic one. Okay. I love this one, number 26. So sweet. Oh, come with old Kayam and leave the wise to talk, to talk. One thing is certain, that life flies. One thing is certain, and the rest is lies. The flower that once has blown forever dies. One thing is certain, and the rest is lies. Isn't that sweet? Those are just such marvelous things to keep in your mind. One thing is certain, and the rest is lies. That's one of those mantras that you can use when it all seems so important to you. It's not lies in the sense that it's not really happening. It's just only happening on this level. One thing is certain, and the rest is lies. It'll pass. And then theologians can talk all they want. In the end, there's just one simple truth. Let them talk about it. Pleasure ends. The world of the senses does not endure. And the question is, what are we going to do about it? And then Kayam is also, it's so sweet. He offers to help us. You know, he was the guru, of course, to many, and, he, and his name in this represents the guru. It's the guru. Oh, come with old Kayam. You know, it's just sort of, and leave them to do that. And we sort of often have this choice in our life. Do I stay here, and uh, whether it's an actual, literal, physical choice or it's a mental choice? What I was saying earlier, do I stay here and just fuss around with all the details? Or do I just leave it and go do something else? You know, do I just endlessly fret 
over tiny aspects of the spiritual path? Or do I really just go to my heart and just give my heart to it? Because we can spend a lot of time being anxious about small things. And in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, there's, there's a sutra that, that, that lists all the possible dangers on the spiritual path. You know, the ways that you can follow the path but it's still not have it quite work out. And one of them is missing the point. It's, it's translated that way. The first time I heard that, I said, Swami, is it translated really like that? He sort of checked it. Yeah, it's just what it is. It's missing the point. It's that you're doing everything, but you're missing the point. And you're missing the point because you're just hanging around and letting them talk. And you're fascinated with this detail and worried about that detail and struggling with this or thinking that the way you're going to make progress is with your willpower or all this. And you miss. That's why Master talked about attunement. You miss the point which is to be attuned with the guru. Just go with old Kayam and leave them to talk. And that means give your heart to it. Just give your heart, love God, be kind, love everyone. One, one thing that made such an impression on me out of um, the God Alone book, yes, I think it must have been there because it was a letter from Master, I think to Sister Gyanamata. And he was telling her what a comfort it was to him to have her at Mount Washington. And he said, because you're a peacemaker. And I reflected on that a lot, uh, what that actually means. And what he's saying there is, I, I talked to Swami about this later. I, I'll, I'll, I'll liken this to other experiences. In the very early 70s, when Swami went to India in 1972, um, some very unfortunate things happened with a couple of individuals and people did not behave well. This is 72, the, village, the community started in 68, 69 and we were all really young. And people misbehaved in the ways that people misbehave. And Swami was thousands of miles away and everybody got, a few people got very self-righteous and just kind of, you know, we won't have it, we won't stand for it, this is not allowed kind of energy, and drove uh, several individuals out of the community, essentially. Swami came back and, and said, essentially, you young hotheads, he said, you, he, was, he, was, he didn't speak directly to the, the young hotheads, but he said it more privately, you young hotheads, he said, you went after a mosquito with a baseball bat which is, you know, you were just too inexperienced to have any sense about how you work with people. And as a result, a couple of devotees really just, they never came back. And it was so, um, I mean, the implications of it only, you know, I only figured it out a long time later. But then what Master would go away. And of course, see, this is our mistake. We think... Oh, well, we're a spiritual place and we're here for the spiritual people and you're not behaving properly and you're not very nice and you have all these bad qualities and you behave like that. And you, at first, you think your job is to purify the place of all these people, you know, who aren't worthy enough to be there. But the guru looks at it just the opposite. These are the halt, the blind, and the lame. And, and he knows that his job above all is to just keep them there so that they can grow if they're truly his. Do you know what I mean? Oliver Black complained once to Master, apparently, about the, the, the people who were coming to his center. He said, all I get there is the halt, the blind, and the lame. Mm -hmm. And Master said, they're your people, Oliver. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, God isn't... 
we're all a little broken. Swami once said, you know, this place is a, a hospital. Sometimes Master calls it a zoo. And sometimes it's the more bizarre who come onto the spiritual path because the ones for whom it's all working great, why would they? Right? So a lot of times it is just the halt, the blind and the lame who struggle in the door and not surprisingly, they're halt, they're blind and they're lame and so it doesn't necessarily work properly. But Master had Sister Gyanamata there and he knew that she would hold them all. She would make the peace. She wouldn't let small things blow them apart. She would hold them together. It was such a comfort to Master because he knew that none of the sheep would be lost as long as she was there. Isn't it just, it's just so sweet. It was so moving when I really contemplated that because so often, you see, we value the wrong things. And that's why old Kayam says, just come away from all those people who are just talking and seem smart. You know, let's just go where we're, it's really true. Because one thing is certain, and that's that we just have a little time. We have to get into the divine. There's no choice. Very interesting. And then the next two go together. Myself, when young, did eagerly frequent doctor and saint and heard great argument about it and about, but evermore came out by the same door as I went in. With them the seed of wisdom did I sow, and with my own hand labored it to grow, and this was all the harvest that I reaped. I came like water, and like wind I go. Isn't that just gorgeous? I love that one. With them the seed of wisdom did I sow, and with my own hand labored it to grow. So Masters uh, Omar Khayyam is talking here about, in the first one, just to study, to listen, to seek out the wise and, and learn to go in and out of superconsciousness. That's what Master meant by came in by the same door, came out by the same door as in I went. At first you might read that to mean that no change happened to him. But what he's actually saying is that he was able to go in and out of superconsciousness. That's how he began to understand. That's how Master interprets it. And, and bring, and then he writes a lot about bringing it into daily life. And then he talks about how the blessings and guidance of the wise are needed. You know, because Omar Khayyam is keeping the right tradition, both by saying, follow me, which is another way of saying, I am a wise man now and you can follow me. And then he's also saying that I became wise because I followed those who know. And this is the simple need for a guru. We just can't find it on our own. But then he balances it. I sowed the seed of wisdom with the wise, but then with my own hand. I had to apply myself because otherwise nothing will come of it. Um, and then what happens? This change of consciousness. I came like water. And the way Master describes it is such a dynamic image of turbulent and moving and whirling eddies. This is the water and the wind is just clear and free. I came like water, like all the river of desires is the phrase that he uses. And also I think he in, in the next quatrain it might be where he uses this. But it's just that you're transformed by the heat and the light of the spirit. The water, it just evaporates and turns into the wind. So all of those desires evaporate and are changed. You, it's like our purification service and our fire ceremony. You apply um, that energy of the divine energy and the water, all that water just disappears. I came like water and I go like wind. It's just all the rivers of desire in the spine are... Yeah, burned up in the chakras 
and burned up in the spine. The breath, the wind, it doesn't say it, but the wind represents the breath also. The river of desires, the karma in the spine is changed by the meditation on the breath and so on. Just beautiful images together. I came like water and like wind I go. Then we have into this universe and why not knowing nor whence like water willy-nilly flowing and out of it as wind along the waste I know not whither willy-nilly blowing and this is the same I was thinking of the the power of the sun to dry up water I mean the image of, of how if you just spill water and put the blazing sun on it no matter how much there is in time it will all go away I was sort of picturing the river of my turbulent desires in the fire of God's transforming energy anything is possible deserts are now where rivers used to be and then this last one then we'll stop what what without asking hither hurried hence and without asking whither hurried no, excuse me, what without asking hither hurried whence, and without asking whither hurried hence, another and another cup to drown the memory of this impertinence. (laughs) Don't you like that? (laughs) But what he says is, you know, it's just, we have this feeling like it's been done to us. We have this feeling like we have no control. I used to say when I was in college, when I got on the path after college, that I used to say I felt like the um, the puck in the ice hockey game of life. That was the image I always had. That I just, just like that, you didn't know where it came from, you didn't know where it was going, and you were just moving around all the time, getting whacked from point to point. And getting on the spiritual path was like going up into the newscaster's place and just being able to see the whole flow of the game out there. But he also says, um, there's no point in lamenting our circumstances. And that's a theme all the way through. It just makes absolutely no difference when Master says a saint is a sinner who never gave up. Another interesting way of put that is a saint is a sinner who changed his behavior and his attitude. (laughs) Which is to say, there's absolutely nothing happening except your consciousness. If you change your consciousness, you become something else. I mean, it's very important to just say that over and over and over and over again. No matter what is going on, if you change your consciousness, it ceases to be an issue. I mean, it may, circumstances may not necessarily dissolve instantly, but everything that matters dissolves. And so this is why he says, another and another cup, let's just immerse ourselves, get ourselves drunk on this wine, and then we can erase even the, the memory of how helplessly we, we lived in this. And that's our divine freedom. Okay. I think that will do us for tonight. Any comments or questions? So, it's really, you know, even though we have this one long one in number 31, it's really about the same number of pages. It works pretty well all the way through. Okay, so we'll see you next week. Thank you very much.